Simple Beep, episode 16, Mist. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And on this episode, we are going to talk about the best-selling game to have ever been a hypercard stack in history, Mist, one of the classic early Macintosh CD-ROM games, and one of the games that really led the way in CD-ROM games in the early 90s. Before we get to that, we do have a little bit of feedback. This is from a couple episodes ago. Since last week we were talking with Jonathan Zufi, we didn't feel like uh, making him sit through follow-up. But a couple episodes ago, we were talking about the history of iTunes and some of the features in there. And one of the things that we mentioned was when iTunes Plus became a feature in iTunes and you could actually pay to upgrade your music. And we got a message from listener Brian Bird, who said that this was actually really useful for him, whereas I had never gone to the trouble of doing this. But he had lost a lot of his music in a hard drive failure without adequate backup. And in the early days of the iTunes store, you were on the hook to have all of your music files backed up. And if you didn't and you lost copies of them, it was like, well, too bad. It was the same as like losing a physical CD that you had purchased. You're just out of luck. But when he says that when iTunes Plus debuted, he was able to pay that upgrade fee and then re-download most of his lost music. And this was sort of an interesting uh, way of using that feature, made it extra useful to him. And I was thinking about this now. We're very used now to the fact that anything that you purchase from any Apple digital store, be it music, movies, apps, whatever, is just sort of on demand for downloading. Even things that get like pulled from the app store sometimes or retired, you can still sort of get access to, especially if you've paid money for them. Uh, but this was not the case then. Of course, the the analog of this here, I think this might still be true for purchases that you aren't allowed to just sort of freely re-download them. I'm not sure what the policy is. And I know that in the past, people would like beg Apple and they would make special dispensation. Okay, you can download everything again once. But of course, the solution today would be sign up for iTunes Match, if nothing else. Because if you're signed in into iTunes Match, then you have access to all of your purchases on all of your iTunes Match-enabled devices, and you could pull down copies that way. And on your Mac, that would mean actually getting the files that then you could back up properly. Brian also says, not you, Brian, listener Brian, <laughs> that uh, he learned from this experience and he now has proper backup systems, including a time capsule and hopefully maybe some online backup belt and suspenders. Plus, now he can always go back to the iTunes store in times of need. But for now, on to Myst. Like I said, a game that came out in 1993 uh, and it came out as a hypercard stack, which we'll get into uh, which meant it was, you know, available for the Mac. Uh, people who have come to the Mac recently with the advent of the Mac App Store and Steam may not uh, think of the Mac as kind of a, a second offshoot wasteland of a platform for games. But there was a definite time where uh, either, you know, consoles would have their marquee titles and PCs would get a lot of games and Mac users were kind of left to... Um, shareware providers like Ambrosia, but not very many 
mainstream, huge titles. Myst was probably one of the first, if not the first. And not only was it released on Macs, it was also developed on Macs. And I think this is what we want to talk about first because it, it's, uh, it's part of the, the classic Mac lore. Yeah, so as you mentioned, Brian, that Myst was originally conceived of and created as hypercard stacks, which meant that it had to be developed on Macs. And the way that this worked was, if you're familiar with the concept of a hypercard stack, we've mentioned it on previous episodes, although we haven't gone in depth on hypercard, is that it uses this stack metaphor that you have a stack of cards and then you have various actions that you can perform on a given card and then ways to navigate between cards. So like the name says, you have this way to create hyperlinks between things in sort of a visual way. If I mean, the best way to explain this to someone who didn't live through the hypercard era and never used hypercard is it's basically like a web app that runs locally. So the way that the game was conceived was that it would be a sort of first-person puzzle game, and whatever card was on the screen would be your view at that moment, and then there would be various things that you could interact with or places that you could go to uh, by clicking on the appropriate part of the screen and moving from place to place, uh, performing actions, completing puzzles, and making your way through the game. And this was all done within HyperCard. Now, one thing that Myst was noted for was th- this was sort of a lot of layers of hacks on top of HyperCard. Anyone who was creating HyperCard stacks in the early 90s was pretty much not uh, making things of the complexity of Myst. I mean, I know we were making HyperCard stacks for school projects or for things like that, and you could put together a really robust, good-looking presentation, but you were not going to have 3D rendered graphics, you were not going to have color in most cases, and you weren't going to have rich sound and, uh, in this case, QuickTime movies, which were all part of the Myst experience. So they were using some well-known add-ons to HyperCard, such as the Color Tools add-on that did let them get 256 color graphics into their game. But what they really needed was a lot of power on the side to create all of these art assets that went into their game. So if you look at the graphics of Myst today, they're really quite simple and could be rendered in real time on any smartphone, even like the worst Chinese knockoff smartphone (laughs) would be able to render this stuff in no time. But this was a huge computing task at the time. And there's a making of mist video that was included on the CD that came uh, that that delivered the game and it went into a lot of the details of how they were able to do this so their main workhorse computers were basically the most powerful Macs that they could get their hands on at the time which were quadras and they had several of these that they were using as basically a render farm I don't think in the sense that they were linked to each other, you know, there, there was no way to do that, but that they would have maybe, you know, five different frames of the game all rendering simultaneously on five unlinked quadras. Not only were they being rendered in the kind of full 256 color 3D, uh, which they say they used Stratavision 3D for with some additional modeling in Macromedia, Macromodel, but they also wanted to be able to deliver 
all of these images um, on a single CD in a hypercard stack on Macs that weren't necessarily top of the line quadras. So they also uh, allude to the fact that they had to do some clever color map editing in each image to uh, like take out color profiles for, for large ranges of colors that weren't used in each specific frame. I think very similar to the way GIF or GIF compression works. You kind of eliminate the colors that aren't used. And they did that using uh, Photoshop 1.0. That's kind of remarkable. Yeah. Uh, Photoshop has had a long and storied history. I guess they did celebrate like 20 years of Photoshop a couple years ago. So yeah, this was the kind of endeavor that they had to go through to get a game of this scope put together. And, you know, you mentioned, Brian, that the release date was in 1993. And I first had any experience with Myst, I think, in 1994. So it had been on the market, was popular, critically acclaimed, selling lots of copies. And that was when my family first got a Mac, which was uh, one of the first Power Macs, Power Mac 6100. And so those were the first Macs that had more capability than the computers that Myst was being created on. So you think of that in terms of like game development today, often whatever is being done to create a game, whatever hardware a game is being created on is significantly more powerful than what it's going to be played on. And in the case of, you know, large AAA games today, it's literally huge render farms where they are linked together and have just incredible computing power that they're trying to then get down to maybe maybe a desktop game, maybe a console game, or maybe even down to iOS, where they really want to use as little bit of that computing power as possible for battery concerns, if nothing else. So it's sort of an interesting thing to think of how would you create basically a top-selling... You know, this was considered a AAA game, sort of, at the time, even though it was kind of indie, kind of a small team. Cyan, the company behind it, was, uh, this was sort of their second large product, and we'll get, well, their first large product, but sort of their second released product. Um, We'll get to that in a little bit. But it's really interesting to think of how much they made with how little they had. And you mentioned the system requirements. We were able to find this. The original system requirements was a Mac LC or faster, System 7.0.1 or higher, 4 megs of RAM, which was probably necessary to make sure that all the QuickTime movies played well. They say 3 megs of free disk space, which I'm not really sure what that was for. I don't know if the actual missed application went on your hard drive or if you could run it directly from the CD. I think you usually ran it directly from the CD, and it may have been requiring 3 megs of disk space to make sure you could have like the QuickTime and, and associated extensions installed. Ah, that could be. And also, of course, disk space for your saved games. Yes, yeah, of course. Uh, it goes without saying that it required a CD-ROM drive. Uh, the total assets for the game were about 600 megs. They, they really, like you said, they worked so that they could fit it into one CD and not much else. And a 256 color display because they were compressing all that color data out of there. They, they do. They look like GIFs. Uh, it's basically the same sort of thing where you do adaptive color palettes. 
and try to make it look as good as possible. And if you were looking at it in less than 256 colors, you are going to have a really poor experience, I think. So let's talk about what happens when you put the uh, the CD in your Macintosh and fire it up for the first time. Uh, like I said, you could, if you wanted to delay playing the game, you could watch the 13-minute or so making of Mist once you put your CD in. But I think most people wanted to just uh, dive right in and playing. Um, actually, I, I should say before putting the CD in, we could talk about what came in the box um, with uh, with Mist. Uh, the CD-ROM, of course, uh, a pretty basic manual. And then also a blank journal on which you could write down all the uh, the clues <laughs> that you found while you were playing the game. And uh, like... It, I'm laughing because it's kind of silly, but to think about uh, like this was the era of big retail boxes of games uh, sitting on shelves in stores like CompUSA. There was no Apple store. There was like CompUSA. I think in Cleveland, I don't know how far this spread, but we had Micro Center. I think that's where we got missed. Yeah, they were a regional chain. Yeah. Uh, and so the box included a full size uh not full composition notebook, but a pretty substantial blank journal because it was expected that you were going to need to write a lot of stuff down as you played. Well, I feel that games of that era often came with like little goodies, like maybe a little poster. Maybe if you had a game where there was like a password system to get to later levels, they would give you a little, a little poster or pamphlet with a list of some of the levels where then you could write, write down your passwords and come back to it, that sort of thing. Uh, but this was sort of just blank. Like here, here you go. You're you're going to need lots of pages of scrap paper for this game. This is going to be a more cerebral game, and th- that's one of the things about the gameplay of Mist is that it's first person, and you know, we. It's hard to say first person without letting the word shooter escape from your mouth. But th- there are no guns. There is no combat. There is no action in some ways because. Again, a lot of the screens were sort of static unless you interacted with a specific object on the screen. So it was sort of a very calm, collected type of game and something that had not existed before. It was a genre-defining game and a genre that really almost doesn't exist, you know, that hasn't had many other things that have followed from it. Sort of the closest thing that I can think of as sort of, in any way, a spiritual successor to this sort of first-person game that's more cerebral and puzzle-oriented is something like Portal. Oh, yeah. Although even then you have a gun, but it's it's not a killing gun, at least not in its primary purpose. I was going to say the The Room franchise on iOS is kind of a spiritual successor to this in that uh, I think one of the things you were mentioning is that like you don't have to interact uh, with things on the screen, and I would go farther and say uh, you don't. Timing is not important when you're playing Mist. Like if you look away, you're not necessarily going to miss anything. Right, and there are very few. There are some few tasks or puzzles in the game that have a time-based aspect to them, but it's on the order of minutes, not on the order of reaction time. There are some things where like you charge up a generator and then that gives you a few minutes of electricity. 
And if you don't act within, you know, five, 10 minutes, you have to go reboot the generator or something like that. But it's not any sort of action that's fast moving at you. Yeah. And so I think, um, so Portal still has an element of timing, uh, but otherwise I think very much is, is the kind of first person exploration rather than first person shooter. And then there are these escape your locked room full of puzzle games that may have been started by a game called The Room uh, and that I've also read are becoming um, like real life adult, like, I don't know, attractions in major cities where you get locked in a room. Yeah, I've, I, I know I have friends who have gone to do these things. They're like, uh, they're like puzzle escape room challenges and you bring bring your friends and you get like an hour to try to put together all the clues and escape and they, you know, they give you a t-shirt if you make it out and most people are not quick enough to do it. Anyway, <laughs> once you've uh, prepared your blank journal, uh, put the CD in and maybe watched or decided to later watch the making of mist, you start up the mist application. And there's one little hint as to what you're getting into before you open up the application itself, which is the data files on the CD are, I think, just out in the open and named. And these were the original HyperCard stacks. So again, uh, Cyan ran into tons of limitations with the plain HyperCard engine. And basically, even with the color tools and all the hacks that they were putting on top of it, they basically overran the maximum size of a HyperCard stack. Fortunately for them, their game was, in a sense, divided into levels, and each one of those levels, the ages, were then a single hypercard stack. And then in slightly later versions of the game, where they ran on their own sort of engine, not on pure hypercard anymore, they were still separate data files. And so you could see that there were these just sort of unopenable data files on the CD that had these names, Selenitic Age, Stone Chip Age, Mechanical Age, etc. So yeah, let's let's launch the game. Let's get in there. <laughs> when you do that, you get... Uh, the first thing that you get is the logo of Cyan, the makers of the game. And this is not just a static image logo, although they have that. It, it's a, it looks like a CD-ROM, to be honest, with a the, with the, like, little glint off of it. Um, forming the letter C. But when you when you come into the game for the first time, you get this visual version of it, which plays this very like lighthearted MIDI piano music, and there's like a little um, little like spotlight that sort of pans around what, if you're familiar with Mist, you can tell is like a very very simple shape mock-up of the Mist Island. And then this comes up and then turns into the Cyan logo with the C. And when it hits that, you can be going along with this playful piano music. And then all of a sudden it blasts with this like power chord. (laughs) And that's kind of the whole vibe of the entire game is that you're going along very slowly, very methodically. And then even though there's not action, there are and it's not a suspense game or a horror game. Nothing jumps out at you. There are moments in the gameplay where you will be sort of suddenly surprised. And we've talked about how uh, 
Cyan was able to embed QuickTime movies into HyperCard, which was no small feat of its own. This uh, Cyan logo and the introductory movie that follows, I think, are the only full screen um, QuickTime animated uh, media files. The rest are kind of smartly, uh, very small media files, movie files that play uh, kind of on top of the full screen flat rendered image. And uh, they were very clever about this. Like whenever you ride an elevator up or down, it's just like the very small window through the elevator door that's animated to show like the movement of the, the wall behind you. But the rest of the screen can stay static so that the movie file itself is very small. That elevator animation, though, I was playing recently. And again, that made me think of Portal. Like, I, I wonder how many of these things are just similarities that we notice and how many of them are callbacks. But when you move between the levels in Portal and especially Portal 2, I think, where then GLaDOS taunts you in the elevator, I, w- I, was, kind of, I was kind of waiting for that. It's like, where is she? All right, so let's talk about the, the game, the actual game of Mist. After the introductory sequence, you are dropped onto Mist Island, and there's a voice intro that tells you how you have sort of fallen through a rift in the space-time continuum and have wound up on this island. Who are you? Well, you are in the first person, but as far as the game and the other characters that you indirectly encounter in the game, you are known simply as The Stranger. At the end of the introductory sequence, you pick up this book that reads Mist, and uh, the the front page of the book plays a quick video that shows you an overview of an island. When you place your cursor, meaning uh, your hand, an extension of yourself, on the page, you're sucked into the world, the world of this island, Mist Island. And you land on a dock, kind of looking forward at some gears. There's a sunken wooden ship to your right there's a, a seagull kind of coasting in the upper right corner, and you can hear the sound of water uh, kind of lapping at the docks in the background. And I remember the first time I played this very, very clearly, perhaps as evidenced by my retelling of it. And uh, it was just, it was very realistic for the time. I really felt like I was there. The whole thing, the graphics were realistic for what they were for the time. The, the sound was immersive. And there was even motion with the tiny movie of a seagull. And as I was replaying this, I have all of those memories of the original time through. And then I was replaying over the past week or so uh, on the iPhone, which is a pretty decent way to play it. It's a pretty faithful port of the game and lends itself to touch interface because all of the gameplay is point and click. And in this case, just tap. Um, and as I was exploring around the beginnings of Mist Island, one of the first things that I thought was that water looks so bad, (laughs) so bad. And I was thinking about, you know, we did talk about escape velocity on a previous episode and that they had all of those rendered scenes that were representative of each planet. And I was pretty sure that they were made with, uh, KPT Bryce. Right. Which we we can chuckle at now. But the fact of the matter was that KPT Bryce came out in 1994. And all of this was and it was revolutionary because it could 
it was the first product, first consumer product that anyone thought could make decently realistic looking 3D rendered water. And it was still, you know, a joke for the time. You know, light years uh, before something like Finding Nemo, where we actually had, you know, again, throwing the weight of as much computing power as you could at rendering water. And that was the first time that anyone really did it on a large, convincing scale. So this was before this technology and the computing power was available, and they did what they could. Um, I think that at the zoomed out scale, the water looks great because it looks just sort of ripply and flat. But when you get in close, uh, it has some noticeable deficiencies, especially, I think, looking back 20 plus years. So you're on this island that has a bunch of notable features. There's the sunken ship to your right when you land. There are the gears in front of you. There's a, a planetarium with a single chair in it. There's a library full of books and a fireplace and a secret passageway. There's a rocket ship for no good reason. Yeah, hey, um, why is that there? Yeah. There's a cabin in the woods. There's a subterranean power station. There's a clock tower floating as its own tiny island. Um, there are all these things. And the more you play, the more you uncover uh, what each of these represents, and more importantly, where they lead. And I think one of the things that, that's important about the early gameplay is that there is no instruction. Absolutely none. Everything is supposed to be puzzling, yet still intuitive. And this is very different than games in the past five to ten years, that do a lot of hand-holding introduction. And a lot of that is sometimes because the control system is very complicated. But on the other hand, you get things like, I remember playing one of the more recent in the Zelda franchise. I think it was Skyward Sword. And anyone who's played any Zelda game before knows the drill. Like, (laughs) you've played 3D Zelda games for the, you know, for 10 years before that, 10, 15 years before that, you know exactly how this is supposed to work, and yet it leads you through just page after page of dialogue. Now push A, now push B, now turn the thing this way. There's none of that. It's just, you are in this world, and it's up to you to figure out what is going on. And with Mist Island itself, they do a good job of making everything just sort of representative and clear while still being a puzzle. You get the idea after a while that everything on the island has some significance because, again, there's a spaceship here. What's that doing? Well, every every single item, every place has some significance. And then once you get the first idea that you can get yourself off this island the same way that you got on, linking through a book, then you realize, ah, each one of these landmarks represents one of my ways off the island. How do I get to those books that let me off the island? How indeed. I remember either in the manual or on like the inside cover of the blank journal, there was a note from Atris, the, uh, one of the main characters, to you, the player slash the stranger that says, if you ever get lost, uh, go to the library. And so on first glance in this library, I think it's like a a hexagon uh, shaped room and each wall contains something of importance. 
but the main wall has a bookshelf and most of the books have been burned. But, uh, at first glance, there are four that are still readable and they're kind of his journals, each about, uh, a separate age, a separate level that you can go to. And these are fleshed out books. I mean, there's a lot of information in them. There's a lot of story in them. This is how part of the storytelling of the game is given to you is just through through words that you read on the screen. And you could spend, I don't know, probably a half an hour to read all four books from cover to cover. But in addition, there is a little portrait on another wall of the library that if you click on it, um, the bookcase kind of recedes upon itself to reveal a, uh, a hidden passageway. It's a classic secret passageway. It's behind the bookshelf. Exactly. And it goes to an observation tower at the top of uh, a mountain, one of the most prominent features of the Mist Island. And if you, you can uh, control where the uh, observation tower is facing by flipping some switches at each of the major landmarks on the island. And it took me way beyond uh, <laughs> the first time I beat the game, certainly the first many times I played the game to realize exactly what this observation tower was for um, and why, you know, there's the hint, like you got to look to the library if you're stuck. And Ed and I discussed before recording that like this game came out in 1993. If you're listening to this in 2015 or later, we are not sorry if we spoil anything for you. But I don't think we really will because I think this is part of the core gameplay mechanic is that yes, everything goes through the library and some of those things that, it, it's that classic adventure game frustration. This is one of those other uh, influences I wanted to talk about is that Myst also draws upon the classic point and click adventure game that had, you know, a long history in earlier PCs and on the Mac. And in that, in those type of games, you control a character who then, you know, you actually see move around the screen because it's in third person, but they had those features where you know you had this screen and there was some little place on the screen that you had to click to discover and you had to have the right object to go to the right place and mist is like that in some ways that you just don't quite realize that you missed something and that you think that you're in a particular view and that you have basically uh three options, which are forward, uh, turn around 180 degrees left and right. But then there's some slight right that you don't even quite know where the area that you're supposed to click is. And one of these is in the tower. Yep. Where it looks like all you can do is go in the elevator, go up a ladder, look out at the thing you pointed the tower at, and then go back down the ladder, get in the elevator and go back. But off to the right, like just a little bit, is where all the clues are. Yeah. And depending on what you've aligned the tower at, you get a different clue. And this is just like, like we said, no spoilers, but this is just like to propel you so you are not stuck on Mist Island for <laughs> for hours and hours because otherwise you can't. And when, you know, I was a kid when this game came out and I think I was, I was just I was just stuck on Mist Island for the vast majority of my playtime in the entire game. Same here. Uh, I think the only two ages I got to without any help were the mechanical age, which is access through the gears, 
and unlocked by um, uh, getting a certain code in the clock tower. Uh, and really, there, I didn't know what the code was. I just blindly clicked on the the levers to manipulate the code until something happened. So that was luck. And then the uh, the stone ship a nope the selenitic age which goes through the rocket ship, uh, you have to first open the rocket by powering it up through the substation, which again I like randomly did without knowing what I was doing. But the code to basically uh, reveal the the linking book inside the spaceship is very clearly laid out in its corresponding book in the library. So that was the only time where I actually felt like I did something. The other two, I was just lost for a very long time until someone helped me. We should talk about that, about where you could go to turn for help. We had mentioned the things that came in the book. There was also a little packet of hints that was sealed with a sticker. Oh, was there? Sort of, yeah, sort of like one of those... um, you know, when you get something and it has a license agreement and it says, like, if you if you take this sticker off, you agree to the license agreement of the software or whatever. And so they had one of those just like with a couple hints. I don't know whatever happened to that from my family's copy of the game. But I do have right before me a copy of Mist, the official strategy guide, which was uh, which was, you know, it was an authorized strategy guide. And. I really, I, I've been looking through this book recently, and I really like it because, as a kid, I was bad at video games. I was just, especially these sort of puzzle type things where I would just sort of wander and not be able to figure things out, and get frustrated at that, and go, "What am I missing? Like, I think I've explored everything. What am I missing?" and these type of strategy guides, especially I remember a lot of the official Nintendo strategy guides were sort of like, do this, go here, it's awesome, check this out, go, 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 go. Um, and it's just like, sort of, they would have a very like list of instructions so you can get everything and win and be awesome. And then like very like, you know, this game is great kind of language. <laughs> Whereas the Mist strategy guide is really clever so it has a full walkthrough, but it's written in first person as a narrative. So the people who wrote the strategy guide basically embodied the character of the stranger. And working in the whole sort of literary vein of, of Mist, you know, all of these book metaphors and, and important books, used that to tell the story of the game and then you could, you know, follow along if you needed to. And that's like the first two thirds to three quarters of the book. And it's in sort of like a, like not quite a handwriting font, but a, a font that tells you that this is, you know, sort of a work of fiction. And then like the last 30 pages of the book is the quick guide. And it's in like, it, it's in some very, you know, very different sans serif font. And it is. It's like, one, go here, two, go there, three, next, four, next, five, hit the switches, play the keyboard, turn the generator, go, go, go. <laughs> but it's it's very nice that they give that sort of like softer and more in-the-game kind of way of getting unstuck. I guess we should talk about the the greater story of the game uh, because, like I said, like there is a, a pretty rich story that 
uh, is revealed to you as you play. Um, so it all goes back to the library again. Uh, on two separate walls of this library, there are uh, two books. One is red and one is blue. And when you open them, uh, the, the quote, video preview of where this book links to is at first mostly static with uh, the occasional glimpse of someone's face calling out to you. And looking seriously distressed. This is one of those, you know, more sort of like shocking parts of the game. You're like, oh, what, what is happening here? Is he in pain? Do I need to help? Can I help him? And the whole purpose of the game is, yes, in a way, to help these characters. But you also have to learn what's going on. And the only way that you learn what's going on is by helping them. Nice cycle there. Um, so that, like you said, there's the red book and the blue book. And in your adventures through the different ages, you will find both red pages and blue pages, which you can bring back to these books and hear more from the characters who are not trapped inside of them, but on the other side in some way. So the basic gameplay of Mist turns out to be you're on an island that has essentially four jumping off points to other worlds. And each world that you jump off to has its own set of puzzles to get you back to Mist. But also on each world is, like Ed said, a red page and a blue page. So you go to a world, find one of the pages, because you can only hold one at a time, and then solve the puzzles to get you back home, wherein you reattach that page to its corresponding book. Uh, and with with each successive page, the picture in the preview window becomes clearer, and the, the person, quote, trapped inside, uh, is able to reveal more to you. But then you have to go through it again, or at least you're expected to go through that same world again, get the other books page, go through, complete the puzzles again, to come back home and hear the other side of the story. Because the more you help each person out in their respective book, the more they start to pit uh, one against the other. Like, you should help me in the blue book, or you should help me in the red book. Don't listen to the blue book. And uh, the more you do it, the more that this escalates until you've gone to all four worlds. But it is a really classic way of having a non-linear level design that when we think of as you know some games just sort of adopt that that's one of the standard bag of tricks that you can pull out in a in a game these days but this was again kind of revolutionary i think other games at the time that gave you that sort of freedom of you have to complete them all but it doesn't matter the order i think of games in the mega man franchise were well known for that. And this is in that same sort of vein where you have to get all of the information one way or another, but it's, and because this is a puzzle game, it's up to you. Whatever you figure out first, that's okay. It's not like you realize, oh, there are all these landmarks and they all correspond to a certain place. Now, which one is first? No, whichever one you manage to uncover the secret of first is first, and that's okay. And Similarly with these red and blue books, you may decide, oh, I like this guy in the red book. I'm only going to get red pages. And you know what? You could, and you would get to a certain ending of the game that way. Or maybe even the same ending. I don't know. I've never done it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you would actually wind up at the same ending. You would miss out on some of that banter and the storytelling. 
it would be a quicker path to the finish. But you have the option of, you know, you could find maybe uh, two blue pages and two red pages and forget the rest. I seem to remember that there was actually, you know, if you knew sort of all the secrets, you could just sort of like never leave Mist Island and just sort of boom, 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 get your way through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That was one thing I wanted to talk about is that like, this whole discovery process of going to worlds to get pages for the books to bring them back is really just so that once you've given enough pages to either or both of these people, they tell you essentially how to beat the game. Yeah. And here's here's your place for the spoiler horn. <laughs> the thing that is the sort of ultimate gotcha oh, really, moment is that the place where the end game happens is behind the door that is revealed to, that is directly in front of you in the first screen of the game on the dock. So you you are put before the door where everything is going to happen, but you have no knowledge because you are the stranger, you are the outsider. You're not part of the story. You have to go through the story to figure out all the things you need to know to walk through the door that is right there in front of you to finish the story and finish the game. Uh, And so a quick recap of what this end game is, is that uh, after you've given, I guess, all but one of the pages necessary to basically restore either the red or blue book, they will tell you, hey, there is a uh, the the last page needed to free me essentially is hidden behind the fireplace in this library uh and here's where you find like the code to reveal the stuff in the library um uh go to this this fifth book that looked like it was charred on the bookshelf but it's actually not surprise uh go to get this code enter it into the fireplace and bring me back the final page i need to be freed from this book trap. And if you do, spoiler alert, you switch places with the person and now you are trapped in their book and you lose the game. But when the fireplace turns around, it does indeed have the, like the, the final red page, the final blue page, but it has another book to another level that you didn't know existed. And when you open up this book to get its, uh, quote, preview window, there's another person who looks up at you, and uh, this is this is Atris. Am I saying that right, Atris? Atris. Damn it! <laughs> Pardon me. This is Atris uh, looking back at you, and you may recognize him as the narrator of the 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 introductory movie that plays at the beginning. And he warns you, "Don't link here. I also am essentially trapped here. I need one more page." Uh, but he only needs one. So now you have, this is like the big decision point in how you finish the game. Do you trust one of the people in the red or blue books uh, and, and bring them a red or blue page to essentially complete their journey? Or do you trust this person who you've essentially just met and, uh, and he gives you the instructions to go back, like Ed said, to the first screen of the game to get his missing page and bring it to him. And uh, when I reached this point, I was like, well, the red and blue books like kind of seem like equivalents, so they cancel out. So I trusted the guy, which I guess is, you know, like, obviously that's what you're supposed to do. And uh, and you go back to the very first screen of the game. 
Uh, you manipulate all the marker switches we were talking about in such a way that the very first one that you see uh, opens up and there's the final essentially white page. Right, this switch that is the first thing that you can manipulate in the game that you flip back and forth and it just does nothing. Turns out that's where the the like game winning move was all along. Uh, so if you if you bring this white page and you go back into the fireplace and take this white page with you into this new book, uh, you go up to Atris, who is the the main character, the pivotal character, and not just missed the game, but actually missed the franchise, missed the the created world of books, uh, more games, maybe TV shows or movies. We'll talk about all that later. But he's the pivotal central character, and if you hand him the page he's missing, uh, you essentially win the game. So yeah, let's talk about these characters who are in the game. So as comes revealed to a certain extent in the game, you realize that red guy and blue guy who are fighting with each other are in fact brothers who are locked in a really serious battle with each other. And the guy that you meet at the very end is Atris, who is their father and who is responsible for the creation of many, if not all, of the puzzles that you have just been through and the very existence of the island that you have been on. This is probably a good point to jump off into the uh, the larger mist mythology, which was revealed in a series of three novels that came out shortly after the game. The first one is Mist, the Book of Atris, which serves as a direct prequel to the game and chronicles the life of Atris from childhood right up until the moment before the stranger links through and arrives on Mist Island. So in the novels, it is revealed sort of the mechanics of how this universe that the game takes place in works. You've learned through playing the game that there are these sort of it's unclear whether they're technological or magic books that can get you at least from place to place in terms of linking out to each of the new puzzle worlds and coming back to Mist Island. And the way that this is represented in the mythology is that there are there's an ancient people called the Dene who have since fallen, and there are some last surviving remnants of them. And they have, yes, essentially a form of magic, a form of magic writing. And they can create two different types of books that are called description books and linking books. And what you've happened upon in the game of Mist is a whole bunch of linking books, ones that take you from place to place, from one age to another. And then there are the descriptive books that actually lay out and create these worlds. So the notion is that there is the real world and then that there are these created worlds that live within books, which is kind of a cool idea. And one of the things that's sort of a plot point in the book of Atris is this question of, it's it's an interesting question of whether the act of creating a description book 
is writing a description book, whether that's actually an act of creation that that place never existed before, or whether all of the places, all of the ages already exist, and the act of describing is what allows the Denis people who have this skill to then go to these pre-existing places. And so you can imagine that which side of that argument you fall on could lead you to treat the things on the opposite side of a linking book quite differently. Because if you think that it's your creation made from nothing, it didn't exist five days ago before I wrote this, well then, you are basically the god of that land, and you can make it disappear, reappear, change, and nothing within it is particularly significant. Whereas if you think that it's just some place that existed before that you now have new access to, you may treat it differently. And that turns out to be the feud that goes on between the brothers, the sons of Atris, who are Cirrus and Achenar. And that whole drama is what gets them all into their various trapped locations before the game of Mist kicks off. Yeah, as you go to the the ages linked from Mist, uh, a couple of them will have like bedrooms that were set aside for Cirrus and Achenar, and you can start to get a sense of how each of them are abusing this godlike power they think they have. Uh, I may be getting this wrong because it's all from memory, but I think Cirrus is kind of obsessed with gaining opulence and riches, and his bedrooms always have like very nice furniture. And, uh, and like items of jewelry or, or other decadence. And Akinar just seems a little unhinged. <laughs> like he, um, he's just going for like godlike status and is into maybe dominating people or having people be subservient to him, but he's not necessarily interested in the material wealth. He's the one with the lamp made out of a rib cage, right? Like some twisted stuff. Like I said, not a horror game, but it has those moments of like, uh, Oh, totally. Where did this come from? And there's and he has like a hologram that turns a rose into a skull and, and all these kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the the rivalry that is revealed, like you said, only in these sort of snippets behind static in the game and is more fleshed out in the novels. The novels received sort of mixed critical review. Um, I thought that the Book of Actress was pretty good. I read it as a kid and then I reread it, I think, in college and was pretty happy with it. Uh, the second book in the series is a prequel to the prequel. <laughs> um, they're just going backwards in time. It's called The Book of Tiana. It was actually the first one that I read, and it goes back to the height of the Denis civilization, which and tells the story of its basic downfall and the characters involved in that, and plays again on this notion of what does it mean to have these various age books? I think one of the things that's talked about in there is they have this question of, okay, so all the other ages that we can go to where, like you said, people live, like people live there almost full time. They're not like, it's not like a day trip out to an age. Some people actually live in them more or less full time. And then there's sort of, you know, various plots around people fleeing their homes in Denis, which is the real world, which is allegedly Earth, you know, the real world, and plots surrounding that. And then the question comes up of, 
So there are all these ages and they're just as good. You know, some of them are very small, like Mist Island, but some of them are whole worlds. How do we know that Denis, the real world, is actually the real world? You know, this is very sort of like, you know, <laughs> this is very sort of like get high and think yeah. about it at two in the morning kind of plot uh, premise. But it's interesting that they're like, well, there's no description book for it. And they're like, well, maybe you just haven't found it. Like, they don't have to be like on a shelf in a particular place to work. They just have to exist. If you burn them, like, then it's gone. But they just have to exist. So they play on that plot, which drives, I thought, a lot of good action. I have not reread The Book of Tiana, so I should put that on my list for some time soon. Yeah, I will too. So these books came out in 95, 96, and 97, I believe, pretty shortly after the release of the game, and right on the heels of the Windows release of the game, which was in 95. It did get ported to Windows eventually, but it was Mac exclusive for a while. And the third one in the series, these are all by the same uh, author pair. Uh, David Wingrove is the primary author. He is a author by trade. And Rand Miller, who is one of the, guess what, brothers, <laughs> who is co-creators of the game Mist. And the third one, I didn't realize came out so quickly in, in the series. I didn't read it until a couple of years ago. It's called Mist, the Book of Denis. And... I found it to be completely awful. It sort of takes that moralizing tone of like, how should we treat people if they live in ages and runs with it to its logical conclusion, which I did not find particularly satisfying. So I give this book a negative review, unfortunately, but I thought that the other two were good. And I, I definitely have to reread Tiana to confirm that. Um, but it spawned this whole, uh, trilogy of novels. I mean, I'm holding them in my hand here, and it's a good four and a half inches thick um, in paperback. So again, you know, you could spend another couple hours reading about this world. And that doesn't seem odd. There were some of the early critics of the first novel thought, you know, people have tried to like base novels on video games before, and that's never going to fly. But Myst was not a classic video game. It didn't have it didn't rely on action the way that other video games did. And it relied so much on story and untold story that telling that story seemed like a logical thing to give people who were interested in it. Some other critics said, oh, well, this, you know, takes the luster off of the game because it's not so mysterious anymore. Uh, but I don't feel like it went that way at all. One of the other things that the books introduced was the Denis language. So the notion is that they have this magical ability of writing, but the magical ability is only in their own language, which is called Denis. Denis is only obliquely referenced in Myst. It is one of the final ages in the endgame, and if you look at those files on the CD-ROM, you will find something called the Dunny Age, D-U-N-N-Y, which is like the stranger's dumb American can't understand foreign languages pronunciation of Dunny, which is D-apostrophe-N-I, which is the name of the people and also the name of their language. It's written in this really beautiful flowing script that they designed for the books, and then this played a large role in the later Myst games. There was a lot of Denis script. 
uh, Dini numbers. They had a separate numeral system, different than our base 10 Arabic numeral system. And the language is fairly fleshed out. It's not on the order of Tolkienian languages or even uh, constructed languages that have been developed for later things, later pop culture uh, franchises like uh, Game of Thrones or Avatar, where they've actually gone out and hired linguists. I taught a course on this sort of stuff for years, and one of the things that I put up at the beginning of the class, like the first day, <laughs> this is kind of dumb, I sort of copied, you know, when you install OS X uh-huh. for the first time or you set up a new Mac, and it has the thing where it says welcome in like 20 different languages. I did that for the first day of my class, but all in constructed languages and got my students to guess what the languages were. And a lot of them, just by the appearance, you can tell because they also have their own writing systems. Like a lot of people are like, oh, I saw Lord of the Rings. That's that's Elvish. I'm like, yeah, which Elvish? They're like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> ha, outnerded you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I would have these up there. And one of them that I had was an example from Denis. It was never, ever guessed. Every single other language on that slide was accurately guessed at one time or another. Nobody ever got Denis. But I feel like that's okay because it is one of the smaller languages out there and would require a certain exposure, not just to Myst, which I don't know if is the best-selling game overall in the series, but it definitely has the most cultural power compared to the many sequels that we'll get into now. So I don't fault them for not knowing uh, how to read some Denis, but really, the we'll, we'll put some examples of Denis script in the show notes. It really looks great, and with the sort of journal style and the hand-drawn maps and diagrams that were present in the first Miss game and then carried over into the later Miss games, it's a really cool aesthetic that... You know, this was the kind of thing that Rand and Robin Miller, the creators, were really good at crafting. They were world builders, but then they also had a sense of game design, and that really brought everything together. So Ed mentioned sequels. Uh, not only was there a direct sequel to Myst called Riven, but there are actually five total games in the series, and then there were... I would say countless re-releases and ports of uh, the original Myst. Um, but actually, before we get into all of those, I think we should point out, like Ed said, uh, the company that developed Myst, Cyan, existed before it and released uh, at least one game. Um, uh, I think they released two games before Myst, and uh, I didn't play either of them, but Ed, I know you played at least one of them. Yeah, so one of their earlier games released in 1989 was called Cosmic Osmo. Uh, I guess the full title, I'm looking at this on Wikipedia, I never knew this as a kid. It's called Cosmic Osmo and the Worlds Beyond the Mackerel, um, which was a totally surreal kind of sci-fi outer space first-person adventure puzzle game written in Hypercard. And it was sticking more to the classic abilities of HyperCard and was completely black and white, as I recall. And 
I think I never owned this game. I played it at friends' houses a couple times and sort of got dropped into the middle of a game at some point. But you were able to, you know, again, walk around, uh, manipulate various machines, and uh, in those ways get yourself around the world. And it felt sort of... The level of complexity in Cosmic Osmo felt sort of choose-your-own-adventure-y. Okay. And I think that they were drawing on they were drawing heavy influence from that kind of fiction. This was sort of a visual hypertext fiction as much as it was a game, at least in my memory. And that was what, this was a kid's hypertext fiction, the same way that those little choose your own adventure books were for children. Whereas what they took on when they went to create mist was they said, We've been doing this kind of game, but perhaps we can tell an adult story, an adult hypertext or first-person adventure puzzle story, and they found a huge audience with that. So yeah, you can see the direct link from Cosmic Osmo to Myst, and then uh, the sequel to Myst, Riven, came out in October 1997, which I think also means after the three books that lent a, an extensive backstory to the game. Yeah, you could dive right into Riven, but if you had read the books, especially um, if you had read Book of Atris and also Book of Tiana, I think it makes an appearance in Book of Tiana, but a large portion of the action takes place in the age of Riven. And you're like, oh, I know where this place is. Uh, and I honestly could go into... Riven for a full show's worth. So I'll try and keep it brief, but uh, it's the same gameplay mechanic. Uh, it's point and click in a very hypercard esque uh, fashion. Um, but the graphics are much better. The world is much more extensive. Uh, Riven famously shipped on five CDs. They were still pushing those boundaries of what can we possibly they had such a large story and a lar large story to tell in a large game to reveal that story through that they're saying, how can we put all of this out there with the technology that we have? And the answer for Riven was five CDs. Or if you were lucky enough, I don't know if it was released at the exact same time or shortly thereafter, there was a DVD release of Riven where you wouldn't have to swap out CDs all the time. And like I mentioned about the gameplay of Myst, there would sometimes be that place that you weren't quite sure that you could click on. And it wasn't like a, you know, a text adventure game where you had north, south, east, west in every room and you, you knew that you could try those. Some places had one exit, some had three, some had five. And that was kind of disorienting as I was replaying Myst. I thought that there were so many more steps and so many more angles and views that you could see, but they just didn't have the room for them. And uh, I think you put this in here that from the making of, they said that there were 2,500 frames of fully rendered scenes, which sounds like a lot, but that's 2,500 individual views to cover Mist Island and all four of the ages. And then you think each view has the potential to have four points, like basically you're looking forward, looking to the left or to the right, and looking behind you. Right, so you just start doing the math. 2,500 divided by five ages, divided by four on average viewpoints per position, gets you down to 
maybe a hundred positions, but probably not. Um, and so the motion I found could be a little bit jumpier than I expected. And it's, this is to give kind of a terrible analogy. It's like with Google street view, panning around in one place is really smooth and feels great. But if you have to move from place to place, it's a terrible experience. Um, just because you don't know how far you're going to go. In Mist, you get used to that because there are a finite number of places and you know, oh, if I click here, I'm going to go way down to the end of the dock. But if I click over here, I'm going to take two steps forward. And you just learn that as part of the gameplay. Riven, as I recall, had some of the same things where you weren't sure. I mean, that was part of the discovery, part of the adventure of the game. But in Riven, it drove me mad because there were certain points that were clearly important connections between various parts of the game, parts of the islands that they were set in. And when you went past one of these sort of inflection points, there would be a transition video, which could be very long, like up to 30 seconds. I recall this one that was like... An underwater roller coaster? It was like going on a roller coaster, exactly. And it took a long time, and you got to the other end, and then it said, please put in disc three. And then you're in this room... And you had, you know, your three ways to go, one of which was straight behind you, and not just turn around, but behind you and go. And if you accidentally clicked that part of the screen, it would not only take you back on the roller coaster without asking, but when you got to the other side, it would say, please put in disc one. And you had just spent two minutes shuffling discs to real because you misclicked. And that was a huge break in the illusion of the game and a huge break in the gameplay for me. And... I got I got fed up with Riven very quickly. I I really did I don't know that I ever linked to another age in Riven. I certainly did. I've played through Riven a couple times. Uh I think the the story that unfolds is a uh, is a little more sinister in some ways cuz it it does build upon um the knowledge of how the Dini language is used to write and in the case of Riven kind of manipulate worlds through the power of like the written word in these books. Um, but yeah, like Ed said, like there were, there were significant leaps in uh, the graphics and the gameplay that required them to span five CDs. And uh, also like Ed said, the, the number five is very significant in the game of Riven. Uh, there are five islands in the main age of Riven uh, that roughly correspond to the, the five discs. Um, the, the, the people who live there, uh, their numbers are in a base five instead of base 10. Sp- you know, spoiler horn, that's a big uh, <laughs> clue to help you beat the game. If you know Roman numerals, it's not that, so you're bad. Right. Yeah, they, they kind of coach you towards finding that out. Um, but yeah, uh, these full screen graphics of like riding a roller coaster from a first person's perspective were one of the big graphic changes. Uh, so like quick time movies and and animation in general was used much more heavily in Riven. Uh, Ed mentioned how terrible the static rendered water looked in the original Mist. In Riven, they were still using these uh, hypercard, you know, like move from point to point, as Ed was describing. They were on their own engine at that point, but it was the same exact mechanic. Uh, And I remember there is an option to enable or disable water effects. So they weren't quite quick time movies, but they would kind of 
like, I don't know, shift colors or something in areas designated as water. So you kind of had that constant motion that made the water look a little better. Uh, like I said, there were full screen, um, quick time movies. Uh, and another big difference in the Riven gameplay is uh, we said that if you've played through Mist and you pick it up again from the start, you know how to beat it and you can do it in like five minutes. You can beat the game from a fresh start. But with Riven, there are two areas of the game that require codes. And these codes are dynamically generated with each new game. So even if you know how the game works, you still kind of have to go through the entire game from start to finish because there are points where you like pick up someone's journal and see the code and it'll be different for each time. Uh, and I don't know, you can kind of love that for, for reinforcing, you know, the need to play through the game. And you can kind of hate that for, for making people who want to pick it up again and who remember certain things to make them endure a lot of stuff that they don't need. Like Ed said, watching a long video just to be told to insert another disc. I think that I should probably give Riven another try because I'm, I'm looking at some screenshots of it now. And it does, it looks so much better than Mist, And it does have a really rich story and it brings in more of the characters that you could be familiar with from the novels or you could just learn more of as you transition from Mist to Riven. And it's also available on iOS and I won't have to switch any CDs uh, into my iPhone. <laughs> and then uh, I know I said I would try to keep it brief, so let's keep on going. There were uh, three more games after Riven, but these middle two, uh, essentially Mist 3 and Mist 4, were not developed by Cyan. And I don't know the uh, the political and logistical and business reasons off the top of the head, but I think it was uh, it's like Presto Studios, distributed by Ubisoft, and then Ubisoft. Uh, but the Mist 3... I want to quickly point out, I didn't play through, I bought it and got frustrated. Um, it's so funny, Ed, that you said Google Street View because that was actually the mechanic of Mist 3 and 4. Did they use QuickTime VR? It, essentially. I don't know if it was actually QuickTime VR, but it was that basic thing where you would like, you you could click forward and click backward to like take steps forward, but each step you're in was a full 360 degree panorama instead of clicking left, right to move uh, backward and forward. Um, and I on, honestly, I don't know much else about these games. I know that they kind of further their plot. There are new characters, obviously new story, um, but I can't say anything else about them. And then Mist 5 was kicked back to Cyan and they got to develop it and uh, release it themselves. And at this point, the technology had finally caught up with their vision where um, they were able to maybe use like the Unreal Engine or another uh, like full free range movement first person exploration engine uh, to to generate the world in real time and have the player be able to like walk through it as you would something like Halo or Call of Duty. And uh, I, I didn't play that one either because at the time it came out, I was on I think the first Intel MacBook which had the like first round of integrated graphics and was nowhere near powerful enough to run the game. Um, but I think uh, like I, they must've wrapped up the story in mist five somehow that they'd started to revisit um, the original mist. And so there, this begins like the chain of re-releases and not just even ports to other platforms, but honest, like remasters almost uh, the first 
re-release of Myst was called the Masterpiece Edition, in which they redid all of their static rendered graphics in like full 32-bit color instead of the same 256 that it was originally released in. Which probably took them like a week as opposed <laughs> to the two years that right. it took them to render it on Quadras at the first time. Yeah, exactly. And then the next thing that came out was a game called Real Mist, which you can buy today for iPad. Yeah, this is weird. I should mention this. So if you want to play Classic Mist with the, uh, it's called the node-based system or the you know hypercard type system where you click around from place to place, it's available for iOS only for iPhone. I mean, you could buy it on an iPad and run it in 2X and then it would look really bad. But when I thought, I was, I was like, I, I know that they released Mist for iOS. I'm going to buy it on iPad because it'll be a nice big screen and 4x3, just like the original graphics. So I looked for it on the App Store and Real Mist is available native for iPad, but the original Mist is not. So you couldn't put it to edge to edge because you would have to run it in 2X mode. So I bought it for iPhone, and you get it pillar-boxed, and it's a very faithful port. It runs just like the original game, even right down to the fact of when you run some of the QuickTime movies, you can see a little bit of the edge of the frame around where there's like a little artifact where it doesn't quite line up or match up. But that was kind of a disappointment because I thought that a true iPad port would have been maybe the best modern experience for Myst. As it was, I bought Real Mist for Mac when it came out because I guess I did have adequate hardware or its uh, its requirements were less uh, restrictive. And um, I mean, it is it is an achievement in itself, especially for people who are very nostalgic for the original Mist to be able to walk through a fully immersive world and, you know, walk as, as far forward or as little bit forward as you want to. And they also threw in some nice things like weather changes, uh, rain and other weather elements, uh, true progression from sunrise to sunset and nighttime. But I remember thinking uh, when I played Real Mist that it arrived on my computer as a pretty new product looking dated in a way that the original Mist didn't. And apparently Cyan felt the same way because they've most recently released the Real Mist Masterpiece Edition, which is uh, an increase in the fidelity of the the graphics and the audio of the fully immersive Mist world. So, by my count, at least on Macintosh or you know like desktop platforms, there are four versions of the original Mist, and that's not including all the crazy like computer and console and smartphone platforms that it's been ported to. I have the Wikipedia page open here, and they have a comprehensive release list. So it was Mac exclusive on September 24th, 1993. It was then released for Sega Saturn, PlayStation, the 3DO, Windows came after those in 1995. The Atari Jaguar CD, which is a game console that I don't even recall. The CDI, Amiga, the PSP, Nintendo DS, iOS, and then also the Nintendo 3DS. So I have only played on the classic Mac and on iOS, and I say that the iPhone version is a nice faithful port. And I imagine that some of these vary in their in how faithful they are. I know that the 3DS version has actual 3D graphics. Don't know how they mastered or rendered those, um, but I can endorse the iPhone port if you uh, want to go back and experience 
classic mist and have the nostalgia without having to pull out a Mac that has an optical drive and uh, classic Mac OS on it just to get it running. And that's not it for Cyan. Uh, they also released a game called Uru, which is basically an MMO in the broader Mist universe. I imagine it's shut down by now, isn't it? That, that's what I was just going to say. I, I'm pretty sure it's shut down now. And even while it was live, it was plagued with problems and was, I think, prone to downtime or promises of, of updates and certain features that were either delayed or never came. I think it's generally regarded as a failure, though I may be overstating that. Uh, but most recently, Cyan has kind of come out of not a hiatus, but they haven't created new original material in a long time. They've stuck to the Mist universe and even more recently than that, basically updating their original Mist IP for modern platforms. But they went on Kickstarter last year to crowdfund their next totally original game called Abduction. And we'll link to this in the show notes. Um, from what I've been able to gleam from their blog posts, it should come out by the end of this calendar year. And it sounds like it'll capture a lot of the same feeling of mist of you're a stranger thrust into a world that's completely foreign and alien to you. And you have to little by little figure out what's going on and what you need to do to like get home or solve a problem. So is this a just a spiritual successor, or is it actually in the Mist universe? I don't think it's actually in the Mist universe. I think it's a spiritual successor. And uh, it's clear that there was crazy demand for this because the Kickstarter raised over a million dollars. And I think their goal was a million dollars, but they met and exceeded it. Let's see. 1.3 million plus out of a $1.1 million goal. And it says that the rewards were estimated delivery in October of 2015. So it's still going on. Yeah, I'll be watching this one with uh, with some interest. Were you a backer? No. <laughs> oh, well, that's the thing with Kickstarters on this scale, that if they actually ship, you'll have another chance to buy them, maybe for a few bucks more, but it'll be there. And to be honest, uh, I was skeptical because I didn't play... Mist 5, which was like the last canonical Mist game released by Cyan. I didn't play Uru. I only heard bad things about it. Um, so I was a little skeptical that they were going to actually come out with or, you know, deliver on their, their promises. But by all accounts, it looks like it'll happen. So I'll be watching. Through these years, Cyan has really been sort of a quiet player in the games industry. And they've come and gone with these with the huge success of Mist and then the huge success of Riven on its heels and then varying success since then and varying attention paid to them since then. And they really live and die on the Mist intellectual property, which they used in the novelizations and the extension of the world. So mentioned the three books that were published shortly on the heels of the original Mist in the 90s. Apparently, there is a fourth Mist book in the works. It was announced in 2004, and apparently a sample chapter was published. And then the project went unfinished. But nine years later, two years ago now, in a 2013 Reddit Ask Me Anything thread, Rand Miller says that 
people should not consider the fourth book called the Book of Merim. They should not consider it dead and that it might still be in the works. There have been some other interesting things with the missed intellectual property and where it could be used. So I found a link recently saying that as recently as 2002, the Sci-Fi Channel announced plans to produce a missed miniseries, but of course, that never happened. Then there was a fan movie campaign to create a movie of The Book of Tiana, which, at least as I recall it, would probably make a pretty good movie. But it was very underfunded because it was a fan project. They got the sort of unofficial blessing of Cyan, but it turned out that they couldn't actually give official blessing because the rights to the book, which are sort of part owned by Cyan, part owned by probably the publisher and the co-author, have passed around hands and movie option rights were just not available. And that project also petered out. Uh, the URL for that was mistmovie.com, and it's now a just dead site, uh, not even a parked domain. They had a blog that had updates on the project, and the last post, according to the Wayback Machine, was in October 2011. But very recently, some news came up. So this was just this past month, in May of 2015, news that Hulu has secured the rights to create that long-lost TV series based on the Mist franchise. And apparently it's actually going to happen, but like all these other projects, we will wait and see when it actually gets delivered. But I think that would be pretty cool. I, I have fond memories of the game, and I think that apart from the third book in the trilogy, they did some really excellent world building, and it would be cool to see as live action. Riven has those sort of hints of live action, again, in quick-time movie form, but seeing that in a real solid production, I think especially people who were fans of Myst would flock to it, but I think given the general openness that pop culture has now to fantasy-type franchises, I mean, things like Lord of the Rings, of course, but now currently Game of Thrones have really been making just ordinary people open to these kind of stories that a uh, Miss TV uh, series could actually really find an audience, uh, although it is bought by Hulu and Hulu exclusive. So um, I don't know to what extent that will hamper things. I mean, I watch plenty of Netflix original series, but... I don't think I've ever watched a Hulu original. We'll find out. And you mentioned uh, missed fans as being a, probably the the biggest potential audience. There is a big group of people who are still active fans of Mist. When we were in like fifth and sixth grade, we were like Mist number one fans, <laughs> but it's faded a little bit. I, yeah, I can remember. Uh, actually, I don't remember how I would have learned about it. I guess through like Mac Addict magazine or someone like that following the development of Riven because I definitely was not online at that point. Um, and like eagerly anticipating the big missed sequel. Uh, but yeah, for the fans who are still around today, there's an annual missed convention called Mysterium. Uh, last year it was held uh, in the Pacific Northwest. So that uh, I think a, a tour of the Cyan headquarters was included, but this year it's going to be in Boston 
from August 7th to August 9th. We'll put a link in the show notes. If you want to go and like be around uh, other fans of the the franchise and the series and uh, potentially, I think you can like solve puzzles together. I think the, the facilitators create one or two Myst-esque puzzles for people to solve together. Um, it sounds like a, a fun time if you're a serious fan of the show. And then uh, one thing I wanted to quickly mention as part of like the the missed impact on popular culture is uh, like all big genre defining things, it had its own parody. And uh, this was a game called Pist, P-Y-S-T, released in uh, the fall of 1996. And uh, it basically took the the overall graphics of Mist Island and imagined uh, what would have happened if like the the amount of people who played the game actually came to the island and so they're like uh, they're like trailers set up for you know like people who are living there and and trees have been cut down there's garbage everywhere the island has fallen into ruins of like uh, an overworn tourist trap um, this isn't really even a game. Uh, by any sense of the word, it's more an interactive slideshow because there aren't real puzzles to solve. You just get to walk around the Mist Island and see all the the in-jokes and the modified graphics. But they sure sold it as a game at full game prices, I recalled. Oh, definitely. And it was it was sold as a game because the, the time that this came out, October 96, I think this was right around the time that the ISRB ratings were going into place. And I, I, I think I remember that you know, pissed got a rating of T for teen and one is, was one of those like first, uh, first software type, first PC game titles that I remember seeing with those new software ratings on them. And not for any, you know, not for any reason other than just juvenile humor, I guess I never played pissed, but I just did a quick Google image search and went through, you know, you could see many of the screens of it that way. And you're right, Brian, that it's just like, it's not so much parody because parody sort of takes the essence of something and has your own take and joke on it. It's just like a, like blow by blow, screen by screen, they've just trashed everything. And uh, we should mention that it's not the entirely low budget crap fest that we're making it sound out to be. It's very close, but they do have one element... <laughs> That uh, somewhat redeems it, and that's the fact that they got the John Goodman <laughs> to play a role in this game. Um, and like you know, quick time movie footage of him it was produced and inserted into the game. Uh, his character is called King Mattress, which I guess is why I always thought uh, the main character in Mist was pronounced Atris. It is pronounced Atris. Oh, damn it! I did it again. <laughs> The one in the game is Atrus, A-T-R-U-S. The one in the books, who's his, like, great-grandfather, something like that, is Atrus, A-I-T-R-U-S. Yeah. Very confusing. We'll put a link to some uh, footage from the game, like uh, QuickTime footage, not just stills, in which you can see him. He's turned the uh, the cabin that uh, in the original Mist on Mist Island gets you into the Channelwood age through the giant pine tree. And um, he's built himself a nice little wooden hot tub in the cabin. And so you get to see a topless John Goodman lounging in a hot tub. So maybe that was worth the full game price of admission for some. Every classic has its haters as well. 
But otherwise, I think uh, I think that wraps up our tour through Mist, and especially how it related to the uh, the early days of the Macintosh. It uh, both was created on and released on uh, Macs of the early '90s, and uh, in addition to defining its own genre of games, I think it was a, a pretty defining moment for the Mac as well. Absolutely. It was one of those few times in that era of the Mac versus PC wars. You know, they were just sort of heating up and everyone who wanted to play games was sort of rightly on the PC side. But this was one of those titles that was Mac exclusive just for two years, but two years felt like a long time. And it was one of those things that could make a diehard PC gamer pretty jealous. So like Ed said, if you'd like to go back and relive Myst, it's available for uh, iPhone and iPad in varying... <laughs> Pretty much anything with a screen. I'm sure that Myst for Apple Watch will be right out. Yeah. I think we'll we'll restrict our show notes links to just the iOS ports, but uh, feel free to go off and find the other ones on your own. I'm kind of curious for the 3DS port because I have a 3DS, oh. but I'm not going to pay like 40 bucks for it. I already paid $5 on iOS. But yeah, you can definitely find it on iOS, and we'll link to that in the show notes. We'll also link to a lot of this other footage, including the like full making of video from the original Mist, is available online. So you can really dig into this stuff. Also, the books are you know still available on Amazon and those sorts of things. So you can really dig back into the history of Mist and this classic gaming era of the Mac. So you can find those show notes, of course, on our website. You can go to simplebeep.com slash episodes and find the show notes for this show and all of our shows. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can also do that on our website, or you can find us on Twitter at simple underscore beep. You can find us individually on Twitter as well. I'm E. Cormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at Bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. We'll see you next time. 